I am Kelly Brown Douglas, and you are listening to Just Conversations, where we explore issues of racial injustice, racial inequality, racial inequities intrinsic to our nation, as well as our collective responsibility to create a more just society, a more just future. Thank you for joining us in these conversations. The Episcopal Church is headed to Baltimore for its general convention. And I will be with you each morning during the general convention with a new episode of our Just Conversations. Today, I am privileged to be speaking with the first African-American to serve as presiding bishop in the Episcopal Church. My friend, longtime friend, the most reverend Michael Bruce Curry. Before becoming presiding bishop, Reverend Curry, Bishop Curry, has served as director of several parishes, including St. James Church right here in Baltimore City. He later served as the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. In this conversation, we discuss his hopes for the church during the General Convention. We discuss the decision to scale back the conference due to the ongoing threat of COVID-19. And we talk about why it is important to honor, to observe, and to celebrate the city of Baltimore at this convention, as well as to learn from this city. Please subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts and enjoy the conversations. Bishop Curry, let me thank you again for joining me in this conversation. Uh, at a time when, of course, the church uh, is gathering, at least part of the church, mm -hmm. is gathering for its general convention. So yeah. let me start there with the elephant that, if you will, is not in the room or the elephant that's not in the city. What does it mean for us not as a general convention to be in the city of Baltimore. And just how difficult was that decision? Well, uh, I thank you for having me, Dean, Dean Douglas. And um, thank you for all that you um, um, and the Episcopal community at Union really is doing both for the Episcopal Church and for the wider ecumenical and interfaith community. Um, of people who are committed to changing and transforming this world from the nightmare it often is into the dream that God intends. So thank you for that. Um, you. you know, it was a difficult decision, um, but um, in, in another sense, it wasn't. Um, which is to say that uh, the convention was originally to be held uh, in uh, 2020. Yes. Um, and, and so... Uh, or 2021, rather, I guess. Uh, but anyway, we had to postpone it at that time uh, because we were still in the thick of the pandemic. And 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 while that was a difficult decision because it's the first time we had ever done anything like that. Um, and and actually, as far as we know, the only other time that the General Convention of the Episcopal Church didn't happen was um, during the yellow fever epidemic. Uh, hmm when William White was the uh, uh, was, right. was really in charge. And there's not too many records except that they just didn't have it because people weren't able to get to Philadelphia for the convention. This was during colonial times and, or post-colonial times and that kind of thing. Um, so on one hand, uh, the pandemic dictated a lot on that decision. 
This was a little bit more complicated in that we're not completely out of the pandemic. Um, we're still sort of in it, but we're moving toward endemic, but we're not completely there either. It's a mix. And we had to make a decision um, both for the attendees of the convention, but also for the people of Baltimore. Um, right. The Episcopal, the General Convention of the Episcopal Church tends to have around 10,000 people who populated over the course of what would be 10, would have been 10 days or so. Um, that's a lot of folk coming in and out. That's a lot mm -hmm. of traffic over a period of time. So we had to make a decision not only about Episcopalians who were going to be there, but everybody else who was going to be there, as well as the community itself that, who lived there, uh, who worked there and would be impacted and affected. And so after consulting with, with medical folk um, and people who do this, public health people, epidemiologists, um, community-based physicians, that kind of stuff, doing all of that, we came to the conclusion that this was a time when the middle way might be the way. So we didn't decide not to come, um, to postpone it or not to come, um, we, but we decided not to come in the same way that we typically would have come, um, to tone down, to come down smaller and shorter, um, um, but to come um, and to make an investment in the community, uh, to do everything that we can uh, to support the community by our presence, by our dollars and all of that kind of stuff, but to do it in what we believe is a healthier and safer way, not just for us, but but for the community. So it was an Anglican via media decision. <laughs> well, as only Anglicans can do, but sometimes when those via media decisions are made, they're made to avoid yeah. uh, oh, like yeah. making moral decisions. Right. And so uh, we know, for instance, that during the time of slavery, we had general conventions yeah. and two separate sections of, of the country, of the nation, but we didn't make a moral decision yeah. uh, in relationship to slavery. So it sounds to me like there were some moral uh, sort of decisions being made yeah. about our responsibility in relationship to the community of Baltimore right. in which 10,000 or so Episcopalians are getting ready to uh, enter. So let me follow up on that a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, and, and ask this, what you, you talked about, you spoke about making an investment uh, in the city of Baltimore and that, you know, in terms of dollars, et cetera. When, if in the best of all worlds, the convention as a whole was still able to be held in Baltimore, what were your hopes? And even now, what are your hopes for the investment that the Episcopal Church, the General Convention, even if it's not there, could make to the city of Baltimore and make a difference? Because I dare say that those 10,000 Episcopalians that would be coming into the city of Baltimore, and you know that city as well as I do, you, right. you served in that city for a long time, that they would not have been moving into West Baltimore. They would have stayed right around that right. convention center, right. right in the hotels, never seeing, as you and I just talked about, the squeegee boys and the realities right. that force the squeegee boys to be, well, squeegee boys. That's right. So, so what what was, if, if this was a moral decision, what is the moral investment 
that uh, you would hope the convention uh, and the Episcopal Church could and should and perhaps still will make to the city of Baltimore? Well, it's it's going to be smaller than we had originally hoped. For example, we were going to have uh, our revival, but instead of doing it at the convention center, we were going to do it in West Baltimore, um, mm. where the squeegee boys are in business. And have been in business almost since the Chamber of Commerce. They've been in business for quite a while. Um, and so that was our hope. And then COVID hit. And I realized, oh, my God, we could set up a super spreader event in the community that can't afford to have that happen. Right. And so we dialed the revival back and moved it back to the campus. And then uh, we realized we couldn't even have the convention when we wanted to have it because of COVID. And so now we've had to dial everything back. But we're still coming. And we're mm -hmm. still coming and there still is an economic investment um, mm -hmm. in the community. So that is significant. Um, mm -hmm. What has been dialed back is our presence in the wider community. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. we're going to have to talk about it and we're going to mm -hmm. have to, to share about it. And the Diocese of Maryland, Bishop Sutton and his team are, are thinking about ways that they can help the convention to engage or be aware of Baltimore, not just coming to the Inner Harbor, because you can just that's go right. to the Inner Harbor that's and you right. don't see the rest. You don't see West Baltimore. That's you, right. You, you don't think see that's where Baltimore. St. James Church is, and you don't see East Baltimore. Only that's you hear right. about East Baltimore is John Hopkins Hospital, where there's a whole right. community that's not John's Hospital. John that's Hopkins exactly. Hospital. Uh, pay attention to those sides of, of Baltimore. Um, that we have an Episcopal Church near where Freddie Gray was arrested. Um, That's right. um, I mean, it's just down to St. James Church. It's just right there. Right. And the Episcopal Church is there. We have Episcopal churches in East Baltimore. So, so the reality is the more aware Episcopalians are, that's, that's a moral statement in and of itself because that does begin to change us and affect our heart. The other yeah, no. thing is it's a witness. It's a witness not just to Baltimore itself, and I think that's part of it, that a mm -hmm. church is coming anyway. Mm -hmm. We're mm -hmm. coming anyway. The virus didn't mm -hmm. stop us. We can't come mm -hmm. the way we thought we were, but we're coming anyway. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also a witness to the Episcopal Church itself that we're mm -hmm. going to Baltimore. Mm -hmm. We're going mm -hmm. um, to one of America's great urban centers, um, mm -hmm. a center that has um, all of the struggles of our cities. Um, mm -hmm. um, and yet, um, Baltimore doesn't quit. I mean, it, it, it's an amazing city. Uh, I mean, it's an incredible city. It's still right. a city of neighborhoods. Um, right. it, it's still um, a, a city of different cuisines. It's still a city. I mean, Baltimore is not just the television show Homicide. <laughs> you see what I mean? It's more than that. And, and so while it's got its struggles, and we must pay attention to that, and how does the church engage that, um, it also has its blessings. Um, and so all of that is part of the urban milieu. And that is what we uh, need to witness to by going there um, to the Episcopal Church and to the wider church community, even beyond Baltimore itself. Let me get you out on this wider question. We are having this conversation uh, not quite a week after Uvalde uh, massacres mm -hmm. of uh, the children of Robb Elementary. And uh, not quite three weeks, a little over two weeks, hmm. after the massacre in your home city, right. uh, home city of Buffalo, mm -hmm. at Tops. Here's what we know. 
we're talking about the church. We began this conversation about making moral decisions, not right. political decisions, not economic decisions. In the wake of these two massacres in less in a month span, in less than a week apart, what has become clear in this country is the lack of moral leadership. Yeah. What is the church's role in, in terms of moral leadership in this country? There seems to be, seems to be a vacuum mm. when it comes to moral leadership, even in relationship, Bishop Curry, I dare say, in relationship to the church. What is the church's role in this time when it comes to moral leadership? Well, I mean, I, 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 on the one hand, there is the church must be a voice. The church must encourage the vote. And, and the church must do it whether it is heard or not heard. I'm always mindful of that passage in Ezekiel and Ezekiel's call um, when the Lord says to Ezekiel, uh, telling him he must go prophesy, he must go speak God's moral word in his time. And the text says whether they hear or refuse to hear, they will know that there has been a prophet in their midst. The church must be a voice, sometimes crying in the wilderness, but a voice nonetheless. And, and we must continue to continue to be a voice um for for the value of the human person of every human child of god and that anything that hurts or harms any human child of god or god's creation is wrong is evil is sinful whatever word you want to come up with i mean this isn't highfalutin ethics and moral philosophy and theology this is this is the basic and so um if if um the way we are currently structured for background checks um, it, the way um, we have uh, automatic uh, rifles and that kind of thing, the way our laws are structured for at right. what age can you buy a rifle, buy a, a gun? Um, I mean, the way we are structured, there are some things we can do legally. Um, and right. there's some common ground. And I, and I'm, I pray that maybe this time something's going to happen in in Congress and our legislatures. And um, our public policy network of the Episcopal Church has responded um, over dramatically um, in letter writing campaigns to members um, of, the, of the Senate and House of Representatives. I mean, even as we speak, that's been going on. But the, that's not picked up by the news media. You see, that's, that'd be a voice anyway, whether they hear or refuse to hear. And Bishops United Against Gun Violence have consistently right, right. have been doing this. Uh, we've been doing this for years. I've been in the House of Bishops for 22. Some, I've been in the House of Bishops long enough. I've forgotten how long it's been. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, it was Bishops for a Just World and then became Bishops United Against Gun Violence. Right. That th That work has continued. And right. other churches are doing similar things. Other people of faith. If people of goodwill and, and, and faith would join hands together and put pressure on our public leaders to make the public policy changes that can help. Um, nothing's going to completely solve. I mean, handguns are still the biggest killer. Um, I mean, they really are. 
Um, nothing's going to completely solve it, but it can be better. Some children's lives can be saved if we will have the will to do that. The church must help to catalyze that and join with other people of all faiths and people of goodwill to, to do that work um, on a federal, state, and, and local level as well. So we need voice. But the other thing is we vote. We must encourage people to vote. We can't tell people how to vote, but we can encourage people to vote. And we can encourage people to cast a moral vote. That which right. is to say, um, uh, I, when I read Romans 13, I, I'm going to get in trouble now. I don't want to get in trouble with the biblical scholars and you're theologians, so I could get in trouble. But if I read Romans 12 um, and 13 correctly, uh, Paul is talking about how to be a citizen of the empire and a citizen of the kingdom of God at the same time. Right. And the criteria right. that he uses, this is incredible, is to love your neighbor as yourself. He right. goes, you right. see, he goes back to that. So what does love look like in the public square? What does love That's look right. like um, right. in the in the commonwealth? What does love look like in civic society? Love is going to look like doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. Love is going to look like, as you did it to the least of these, you have done it to me. That's Jesus talking, not Michael Curry. That was Micah the prophet talking, not Michael Curry. Love, you see what I mean, is going to look like the good Samaritan taking care of somebody because they're a human child of God, not for any other reason except that they're a child of God and they have a need. That's what love's going to look like in public policy, in international diplomacy. And so we must articulate that message and keep applying it and keep pushing our leaders and pushing ourselves to apply it at this general convention. I mean, just to, to circle back at this general convention, yeah. um, President Jennings and I um, uh, formed a working group on uh, truth telling, racial reckoning and healing um, that that includes looking at how have we as the Episcopal Church been complicit um, in, in the forced removal and genocide of indigenous Native American uh, peoples? How have we been complicit um, in the, the enslavement of African peoples? How have we been complicit in the colonization and, and, and putting down of peoples? Um, not to impose guilt. This is not about guilt. Um, this is about uh, learning from uh, the mistakes, the sins, the wrongs of the past, learning from them so that we can turn from them and then having learned something, work together to build and construct a new future. You can't change the past, but you can redeem it by building and working on a new future. Okay. And so we're at, we're going to look at how, what, what kind of endowments do we have? You know, endow audits of the endowments of the physical church has never been done. Of the whole church, right. the diocese have done it. We are not, and it's, and we're going to do it in Baltimore. And and thank God, Episcopalians are good folk. We're going to do it um, not to beat up on each other. That is not what this is about. This is about how we can help God to heal each other. But to get healed, you you, you got to first. You know, I, I'm a I'm a cancer survivor, and I remember when the doctor told me you you got cancer. I didn't want to hear that. I thought that was bad news. That was good news because the process that would lead to my healing could only begin when I had faced what the problem was. That's right. That's you see, right. And that's all we're talking about. Uh, we want to get healed and get well. And then we, in turn, want to encourage our country to do the same thing. And that's our right. countries, the Episcopal Church is in a number of countries to do the same thing. Who, who are folk who have been systemically and, and, and annually and often put down and cast out 
and how do we help to raise them up so that we can all become what God wants us to be, the glorious liberty of the children of God, God's rainbow children of God, as, as Brother Desmond taught us. How can we become that, that beloved community, that kingdom, that reign of God's love um, taking us off? We're going to do that in Baltimore. We're going to start that work in Baltimore, and it's in, it's it is significant that that by God's grace, the Episcopal Church will officially commit to this, not for the tenure of Michael Curry, but when Michael Curry is dead and gone on to sing with Jesus for generations yet to come, that we're going to commit to working to build a world where race does not divide us, where race is not the source of inequality or inequity, where there are no more doctrines of discovery, right. where everybody is a child of God and every valley is raised up and every mountain and hill made low, the crooked straight and the rough places are plain, and then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That's what we're talking about. And we're going to do that in Baltimore. Well, now you just preached us a sermon. So and that sounds like a resolution to me. <laughs> and so I promise this is it. If this, that sounds like we like in our general convention to write resolutions. Yeah. If there was one resolution that was to come out of this general convention, Bishop Michael Curry, hmm. what would you want that resolution to be? A resolution that commits us to the work that I just described of true tooth telling true reckoning, true healing that commits us to that work, not just for the next two years, but until the work is done. And we can say amen on that. Amen. Let it, let it be so. Thank you so much for oh. this conversation and for the work of the church. Thank you, Dean. Thank you. For our second interview today, I will be speaking with DeRay McKesson, who grew up here in Baltimore and has become a national voice and leader for the movement for Black Lives. He is the author of the powerful book, On the Other Side of Freedom. He is the founder of Campaign Zero, a nonprofit that raises up solutions with the strongest evidence of effectiveness at reducing police violence. We will discuss hope and faith and what it means to show up and to tell the truth in public. From his time working in the school system to helping area nonprofits and elected officials to joining protests in the street, DeRay's experience is valuable for faith communities to hear and to take to heart. I hope you enjoy this conversation. First of all, let me thank you, uh, DeRay, uh, for joining us in this conversation today as the Episcopal Church gathers for its general convention in your city of Baltimore. In your book, On the Other Side of Freedom, you say that protest is telling the truth in public. I love that definition. So as Episcopalians come, thousands of Episcopalians come flooding into the city of Baltimore in July. What is the truth 
that you would like to tell them? I think what I'm reminded of every day is that it doesn't have to be like this, that people chose for poverty to exist, for hunger to exist, for police violence to exist, that, that like a better world is not only possible, but possible quickly, right? That we can yes. undo all the stuff in our lifetime. And I think that the, the biggest trick of the status quo is making people believe uh, that what is present is permanent. And like as organizers, we always say like the present's not permanent, right? That, like the thing here today is not the thing that always has to be here. But people don't believe that. And, you know, as organizers, one of the things that we always say is that I can't empower you. Like, I, like that empowerment is really me helping you see, believe, and use your power. I can't give you power, right? You already got it. Right. But I can help you see it, believe in it, and use it. And the more and more we do that work, the, the, the closer we get to winning. It, it reminds me of what you say about faith, right, and about hope. Uh, in your book, and we're talking about faith leaders, and and you say faith is is that when people really believe uh, that there will be a difference, that things will change, that justice will happen, and hope, uh, you say, is is uh, people working for that possibility. Hope is is that. I like to think of it almost faith in action, but the, the possibility, as you say that, and we're talking about faith leaders, what does it mean for them to really believe that things are going to change and that there in fact will be a day when there is justice? What does, what does that look like in terms of them moving from, as you say, being allies? To being accomplices. I think what I'm always trying to, uh, so much of the book was me writing to myself too, right? And there was this thing where like, I think people are like, well, when justice will prevail, it's like, we might not win, right? Like, I, I believe that we can, but I don't think it's inevitable. It'll mm -hmm. only come on the heels of people like you, people like the other activists, citizens, like actually pushing for it. And this idea that hope is not magic, hope is work, right? That we That's actually right. have to like, you know, you, you, you're in the church. It's, it's it's not enough to like just have a wanton belief in God. Like it's the reason why people go to church. It's like practice. Right. It's like we all have to like be in front of the word. Every like we we understand it in certain contexts, but for some reason in the social justice space, people like lose it, right? Like it's right. like you people, you gotta go to church every Sunday. You gotta read the Bible, Sunday school, like there are all these rituals and and procedures, and there are all these like uh, ceremonies like there, there's a there's this idea that like belief is actually a practice right and we say the same thing about social justice that it is a practice it is like a daily sort of commitment and grind so when I think about faith leaders uh, I, I think I'm always surprised at how few people feel like it's their responsibility to tell the truth in public about a host of things right they're like you pastors should be people outside being like the police shouldn't kill anybody Pastors should be people being like, we can feed everybody. You know, like, so I'll never forget in, in St. Louis, um, one of the most contentious for sure and most powerful of the protests was called Black Church. So there was one day, two Black women, they, I got a group of us together, it was like 15 of us, and we stood outside of four churches, three churches in a synagogue. And one pastor called the police on us. Mm -hmm. Another got the, the vans to block us. And the synagogue called the police on us. And then there's one church where the pastor came out and stood with us, right? Hmm. And it was like, and you know what we did? Like people hear that and they think that we were like shutting it down. Literally, right. we were humming, wade in the water. 
That's it. Wow. Yeah. We didn't block the entrance. We stood alongside the entrance humming and with signs that said, Mike Brown was the least of these. Jesus was a protester. Like that's, that was the disruption. Right. Right. And even the pastors weren't willing to stand with us, you know? And right. it was one of those things where it was like, what God is this? Show me your God. Cause this is not the God that I believe in. That's right. And that's not faith, right? I mean, you know, and, and it, if, if faith is really that which says that this will be different, then how do you enact that? And I like the way you talk about, you know, people go to church every Sunday and that becomes a ritual and a thing that to enact their belief. Well, what does it mean to live into your faith? Uh, to, and so I want to talk about that even, in, even more particularly in relationship to Baltimore. You know, Maryland as a state has one of the lowest poverty rates. I think it's nine point something. But Baltimore has the highest in the state and one of the highest uh, in the country. I think their uh, uh, Baltimore's poverty rate is 21% of the population of Baltimore is in poverty. 90% of uh, Baltimore City uh, uh, public school students are in poverty because 90% of them are Black or Latinx and 90% of those are in poverty. That's one statistic, right? There's the other, the police, which your uh, mapping police violence has shown very clearly that we know nationwide that Black uh, people are two to three times more likely to be killed by police and unarmed. You showed that in Baltimore, between uh, the period of when you were collecting the data in 2014, all the people that were killed by, by police were Black. What will it mean for all of these Episcopalians flooding into your city to really live into their faith in this context? Yeah, I think that... You know, the thing about Baltimore is that we have tried every program that could happen. We've piloted it in the city, right? <laughs> and it hasn't worked. And I think that Baltimore is a great example that if the system doesn't change, if the structure, like if the government can't figure it out, if the structure doesn't change and like community won't change. Baltimore is also a great example. You know, Baltimore is known famously for the violence. The levels of violence are historically high. You know, people think about The Wire, The Corner, all the shows. Right. And I'm never surprised by it. You know, I, I okay. used to work in a school system in Baltimore, open up an after school center, grew up in the city, blah, blah, is when you give people no resources, That's exactly make them right. fight over the scraps of resources that are just happen to be available, what do you think's gonna happen? Exactly. The miracle is when there's not any, where there aren't yes. homicides, et cetera. That's the miracle. <laughs> when you don't fund the school system, when people are going That's to school having to wear coats, because it's so cold, not because the school system doesn't care. And I, I was a senior leader in the district. I was the youngest chief in the history of the school system. But you're making really hard choices about, do I fix the air conditioner or do I fix the elevator? Because we just don't have enough money to do both, right? That's right. That's and it's right. those sort of things that become really hard. And I think the more and more that people say that out loud, like Black people didn't choose poverty. People are like, you know, these are conditions that were set out for people. People were forced into these conditions. Right. I, I believe the better it is. I struggle with Baltimore though, because I don't know what we do if the if the structure itself doesn't change. If we get a mayor that like finally understands it has the willpower, because in Baltimore, the nonprofit community has been 
the community sort of holding it together, right? Yeah, but the right. nonprofit community has has essentially kept us from the brink of disaster, but cannot get us to, to glory, right? Like can't get us to the higher ground, but can make sure the city doesn't teeter off into sheer chaos, you know? That's right. No, you know, my son lives in Baltimore and- uh, Oh, where? And yeah, he lives on uh, Calvert. Uh, oh, he uh, lives like, okay, yes. Yep, yep, yep. And so he's been living there for the past three three years or so. He loves Baltimore, and he talks says the same things that you were saying uh, about Baltimore. And here's what we know, right, Deray, that if indeed you trap people in conditions that breed death and not life, then why should you expect there to be life when you you literally are fostering death, right? And what we don't recognize is that those conditions are violent. And so why should you be surprised when that violence breeds violence? And you are also so right to talk about, my son talks about this all the time, that the nonprofit organizations are holding Baltimore together. So here's the question. Here's what he doesn't say, and here's what you didn't say, that the churches are playing a central role in making sure that Baltimore at least doesn't just completely tip over the edge and uh, become a community of really of death. What is your biggest disappointment about the churches and their role? I think that people have, even the good people have sort of just been like, it is what it is. Like this is, this is yeah. what we got, right? right? They're like, this is it. And I just don't know how you win in that scenario. I, the churches, it's also a city where like everybody sort of knows everybody, right? So you get to a certain level in public life and we're dealing with this, you know, whether you, the, the state's attorney in, in Baltimore is a black woman. Yes, um, mostly right. for a long time. And, and she and I are on, on different sides of this case with Keith Davis, right? Yeah. And I am certain she is not right. And she has done other good things, but this is one where she just isn't right. Oh, right? So I have no personal animus yeah. against her, but like she's not right on this one. And it's so interesting because people off the record will be like, yeah, she's not right. But it's like, well, I know her and, you know, we grew up together. And you're like, my commitment to justice is actually bigger than any personal relationship I have, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Just like your love of God should be bigger than any random, like, you know, like that is such a wild thing. So like, I, you know, so that's one. The second thing is that what the system does to people is that it makes you question like your own eyes and ears. So I'll use this, I'll use this case as a good example. In this case, the firearms examiner literally says he didn't take notes, didn't take photographs, and did not take measurements. The lawyer says, are you saying you eyeballed it to match the shell casings <laughs> to the gun? He says, yes. That is wild. Right. That's exactly. But when we tell people who work in the system, they're like, oh, that happens every day. You're like, well, that doesn't make it right. That is still wild, right? But there's like a way that, you know, you hear it and people are just like, oh, well, that's normal. You're like, that's not normal. There's like not a world where I will give you that that is normal. That's not right. normal, right? But the system tricks you into like sort of not believing yourself. And you're like, no, I know what I saw, know what I read, know what I listened to. And I know that's not right. Right, right, right. No, that's right. I'm I'm from Maryland and taught in Baltimore at uh, Goucher College. Years and uh, tried to stay engaged um, uh, as much as possible in just these kind of things that are going on uh, 
in Baltimore. But increasingly, of course, uh, don't find the folks who are supposed to be telling the truth and protesting by telling the truth uh, in the middle of that. And that's and, and that are that is the church that are uh, faith faith leaders, and th they seem to be move in and out. You know, as you talked about the protest and uh, Ferguson and other protests, the real change occurs as you sustain not simply the protests, but you sustain uh, the fight for change. You sustain the fight for justice when the cameras are long, have long since gone. Uh, and that you remain proximate uh, with these communities who are, who are trapped in, in, in these conditions of, of death. So I wanna ask this question in terms of remaining proximate and being proximate. I often talk about myself, how sort of white people move in and sort of, and they do immersion trips or they do pilgrimages through a neighborhood. They'll come in and they'll move through Baltimore and then they leave. We're gonna have thousands of Episcopalians and from a church that is not white supremacist adjacent, that is historically in so many respects provided the theological legitimation uh, and the, the religious institutionalization of white supremacy, uh, a wealthy church. How would you like them to be pr present as they are in Baltimore for a week? You know, I think one of the things that happens when when these sort of conventions happen and the conferences is that everybody comes, right? Whole city council right. comes, every elected official, everybody's coming to say hi, right? Right. And you should let them off the hook in the same way that if your kid was in a really bad school. That's right. And you happened to be there when the superintendent was there and it was, your, your kid ain't learned nothing. You mm -hmm. would never be like, hey, just super, you would be like, hey, superintendent, what's going on with my school? Like, you would never let it be a dog and pony show if it was your child, right? Like if right. it was like, if That's all right. these people were failing your kid, you would be, you know, and like, you you know, your parent, it's like all the things you think you would never do. I think about parents I, I dealt with in the school system who would have never flipped out on somebody, but somebody <laughs> hurt their kid. They caught, they done cussed everybody out that they could get on the phone. You know what I mean? Because that's what Been you do. Like, <laughs> right. And you, and you were like, you know, it'd be like, Douglas is not that kind of parent. They did some of your job. You know, you write a light the whole school up. You know what I mean? Right. And it's that sort of like intensity that we need to hold people to the fire. Because I'll tell you, I'm in rooms with elected officials all day. That's actually where I'm going. Right when I get off this call, I'm, I'm going on a call with the mayor that we're trying to uh, push to do something that more progressive in their city. And the only the, the only time where I'm sympathetic, and this was an Obama thing, is that we've had Obama twice. The first thing is Obama. People literally went around and they were just like thankful to be in the room, right? And he's like, hey, we need to get to the content. But what Obama can say that is real, whether you like him or not, is that people were not pressing him. In the room, people were not. Right. In the room, people right. were like, thank you to outside on the news, they might say something else, but in the room, right. They were very right. Just, not just glad to be around hated. the table. That's right. Yes. And I'm sitting here like, I just got dragged out of a police department by my ankles. Right. I am ready to light everything on fire. Right. 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 right and right. it's that sort of stuff that like, you know, we, the protesters are the people being honest and we were respectful and that, but we were like, this is unacceptable. Right. And it's like, you were, it was shocking to see people whose like whole bread and butter was that they tell truth to power, did not have a whole lot of truth to tell when power was in the room, you know? 
I like that. And in, 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 in what it says, I, I like this analogy of the parent. If indeed uh, church folk believe that we're all children of God and all one family, well, then one of your family members is being disrespected and not treated as the sacred person that they are. You should light this place up, should not allow for the kind of reality that is Baltimore Black Baltimore to exist. Uh, uh, who, so you know, there was just a police, uh, a police involved. Uh, the police just killed somebody in Baltimore, and the story is, and like you read the article, and the, the police narrative is, we saw the car, we thought the driver had a warrant for his arrest, and then it's like, well, did he have a warrant or did he not? But how did just looking at him? How did you think he had a warrant for his arrest? Right. What does right. that even mean? Could you, if we did that in white communities, if the police were just shooting people because they thought you had a warrant, <laughs> right? The whole police department would be undone. Right. Right. So, so DeRay, I'm going to get you out of here. Two quick things. One, where, if there was one place that you would want these church leaders to go, where would that be? So, you know, I lead a group called Campaign Zero. We try to do action-based, actionable campaigns for people. Yes. We have 14 campaigns coming online in the first half of 2022. So we have a lot going on. CampaignZero.org would be one of the places that I tell people to go. Great. So so we'll, we'll get them connected. We'll get them connected to that. Thank you so much, uh, DeRay McKisson, for your work, your witness, and uh, this conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you.